I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 18 this morning as we make our way through the second half of this chapter. It's fitting this morning being a communion Sunday as we celebrate, remind one another of the Lord's forgiveness of our sins in Christ, that we would focus our attention on Christ's teaching on forgiveness, on the ground in the church. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. In turning there, you'll find these words. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will, I, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would give us soft and moldable hearts, that we might find your word penetrating to the deepest parts of our being. We pray that you would help us to see the massive forgiveness that you've given us in Christ some of us even for the first time, and that as a result, we would be a, a church marked by incredible levels of forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Why should I forgive her? Why should I forgive him? Each and every one of us has asked that question at some point, your him or her is different than my him or her. We've all asked that question, why? Why should I forgive? 
That was one of the questions that was addressed by actress and writer Sarah Montana in a TED Talk in which she described the brutal murder of her mother and brother in her own home and her journey to forgive their murderer. In the lecture, she presents three potential reasons that we might forgive. Each one of them, as she insightfully points out, falls short of proper motive. Why do people forgive? Number one, she suggests forgiveness makes you a good person. Wasn't that right? We all want to be good people. We want to feel good about ourselves and be viewed as good people by those around us, and so we forgive. That's what good people do. Number two, forgiveness is pressured upon us by others. Each of us has had a fault committed against us that other people were quicker to forgive than we were. We felt the pressure to forgive by others. Number three, forgiveness is a shortcut to healing. That's one of the favorites of pop psychology, isn't it? If you really want to be healed from an offense, then you need to forgive. She points out that motive as selfish. Trouble is that Sarah ultimately concludes that the right motive to forgive is to free ourselves from the burden of justice rather than pointing us to the free forgiveness in Christ. But I want you to hear how the Apostle Paul describes the motive for forgiveness in the book of Colossians. In chapter 3, verse 13, after having written of all that Jesus has done on behalf of His people, he writes, as the Lord has forgiven you, in the same way that the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must, non-negotiable command, you must forgive. Here in Matthew 18, that's the message of Jesus with a few different contours. I like the way that Craig Blomberg, a commentator on Matthew, puts it. In a nutshell, Jesus' teaching is this. God eternally and unconditionally forgives those who repent of so immense a debt against Him that it is unconscionable, great word by the way, unconscionable for believers to refuse to grant forgiveness to each other for sin that remains trivial in comparison. I want to take what Paul writes in Colossians 3 and pair it with what Jesus says here in Matthew 18 and suggest to you that the, the main idea of this text and therefore of the sermon this morning is this. In light of God's free forgiveness in Christ, you, if you be in Christ, you must forgive without limit from the heart. If you are in Christ this morning, in light of God's free forgiveness in Christ, you must forgive without limit from the heart. Now, before we even get into the passage, let's just address the primary application here in our text by looking at context. The whole occasion of this parable of the unmerciful or unforgiving servant is the question of Peter, how, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? See, Peter has understood something. He's understood from everything that Jesus has just finished saying that the goal of church discipline or restoration, as we called it last week, the goal of verses 15 to 20 is gaining a brother, gaining 
a sister. The goal is that when confronted with sin, a believing person will repent and seek forgiveness. And as it's been pointed out before, I point out to you, it's actually easier. It's easier to enact justice. It's easier when a brother or sister does not repent than it is when they do repent. Because when they do repent, well, we get to Peter's question, how many times do I have to go through this whole rigmarole? How many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? My brother. So the primary application here of Matthew 18, whatever it might say to forgiving those outside the church, Jesus is referring to our relationships together in Christ, in the church. This is how we are to relate to one another, having trusted in Jesus. We're supposed to relate to one another on the basis of forgiveness. Now there's something in this passage of the why and the how of forgiveness. The why is stated in the parable as the Lord has forgiven us, as the king forgave his servant. That's the motivation. And the how is without limit and from the heart. So I want to look first at this idea of forgiveness without limit, verses 21 and 22. Forgiveness without limit. Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, I want to just sort of indulge in a bit of imagination here. I can imagine Peter with his bravado sort of approaching Jesus, feeling really good about himself. After all, the rabbinic sort of mandate at this time was you'd forgive someone three times. Three strikes and you're out. That's the law according to the rabbis. And here Peter must have thought really grand things about himself. Not only am I doubling the amount, but I'm adding one. How many times must I forgive, Jesus? How about twice the standard plus one? Seven times. But notice that Jesus, he hits Peter with what can only be described as a gut punch. Because in the face of Peter's self-congratulation, I'll forgive seven times. Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times but 77 times. Now, I want you to understand that when Jesus here responds to Peter, he's not sort of giving Peter the upper limit of forgiveness. He's not establishing a new line which we might not cross when it comes to forgiveness. It's not as though he's saying to Peter, yeah, you know, the limit, once once you hit number 8, you're done. Once you hit number 78, you're done. If you're an old King James Version user, it's not like you hit 491 and you're done. No, Jesus is saying forgiveness without limit. Without limit. And in order to see exactly just how topsy-turvy life in the kingdom actually is, how different life in the kingdom actually is, the difference it makes to be a follower of Jesus when rubber meets the road and someone in the church offends you, you have to be able to hear the allusions to other portions of the Bible present here in these verses. Because there's a a very clear echo of Genesis chapter 4 here. 
You remember in Genesis chapter 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, who murders his brother Abel in cold blood because the Lord receives Abel's offering and not Cain's. Cain complains to the Lord, if, if, if someone finds me, they'll kill me. And the Lord says to him, no, if, if someone kills you, Cain's vengeance is sevenfold. You fast forward a little bit into the chapter in verse 24, and we meet someone named Lamech. He says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Do you hear that? Seven. Seventy-seven. So what Jesus here is saying is, it is a wild world out there. It is a world characterized by revenge, blood, thirst, vengeance, retaliation, Jesus is not seeking to establish the upper limit of our forgiveness. He's he's seeking to say, within the church, among my people, we will be as obsessed with forgiveness as the world is with revenge. We'll be as committed to forgiveness as the world is to vengeance. Forgiveness without limit. On and on and on it goes. When a brother or sister sins against us in Christ, here Jesus says we are to forgive and to keep on forgiving. Why? Well, it must be, it in fact is, that this is precisely how the Lord forgives His people. It's not as though the Christian is called here to do something that God Himself is unwilling to do. God's forgiveness to His people in Christ, His repentant, broken, sinful people is limitless. If you think for a moment that the the forgiveness of God in Christ towards you was a small thing, that you aren't sustained by fresh daily doses of forgiveness, all of 1 John 1.9, you haven't really understood your debt. And that's exactly where Jesus turns. Because here he, he implores us not only to forgive without limit, but to forgive from the heart. Now this is maybe even more challenging. Forgiveness without limit, okay, on and on and on it goes. But what kind of forgiveness are we really talking about? Well, we have it there at the end of verse 35. Forgive your brother from your heart. This is a challenge. Now, in order to get us there from forgiveness without limit to forgiveness from the heart, Jesus travels through this parable of the unforgiving servant as it's headed in the ESV. It's a parable in three parts, really. Three scenes. Each of them speaks powerfully to the issue of forgiveness. Jesus begins by telling us that the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom might be compared to or likened to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. In other words, it is time to pay the pied piper. 
The king has looked at his accounts, and it is time to invite his servants into his reckoning room. Payment must be made. And when he began to settle, verse 24, one servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now here in this text, sin is pictured as a debt. I think that's a, a beautiful image for us as Americans. We Americans understand debt. I know because the average debt carried by an American household is $137,000. We get debt. Jesus pictures here in this parable sin as a debt. This man owes a debt. Now, if you and I tell each other sort of tongue-in-cheek that we're up to our eyeballs in debt, this man is buried alive. You might say he's upside down and inside out and every other which way. He's in a mess. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. If you are, that's great, but good on you. It, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to see just how dire his straits are. All you have to do is be able to follow a footnote. Look at footnote 9 in the ESV. He owes 10,000 talents. We're told in the bottom of the page that the talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. Now, you might not be a Bible scholar. I'm not a mathematician, but I can do some simple figures. And when I do the sums, it looks like he owes about 200,000 years salary. Now, the word for talent here, or, or talent rather, is, is the largest Largest sort of denomination of money. Ten thousand is the largest number for which there's a Greek word. Jesus is using the largest, most descriptive language he can to get our minds around the fact that this debt is absolutely insurmountable. It's untouchable. It's like when you ask your child, what's the largest number you can think of? And they just begin to stack words that have some resemblance of, of you know, numerical value. Ten billion, trillion, zillion thousand million on and on it goes yeah you're starting to scratch the surface here of the kind of debt that we're talking about it is a mountain of debt as we continue in this first scene we read that he could not pay well that's no surprise is it no one no one's listening to jesus scratching their heads going i wonder why he couldn't you know take out you know he could have subsidized things or you know sort of consolidate his loans or whatever he couldn't pay it was impossible and so he's ordered to be sold into slavery. The king's going to recoup something. He might not get all of the money back, but he's going to recoup something. He's going to sell this man into slavery. And so the servant falls on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. This man thinks he needs time. He needs a miracle. He needs to be saved. And in the face of his floundering and his blubbering, give me more time, it's just more time. Verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him. What? Here comes the miracle. Forgave him the debt. You don't owe a thing. You can have your life and your wife and your kids. But let's just make a painfully obvious observation here. It's not as though the 200,000 years worth of salary just sort of appeared. 
No, if, if, if this king is going to forgive the debt, he's going to have to eat the cost, isn't he? He's never going to see a cent of that. He's got to pay it himself. You see? To forgive this debt, to release this servant from this mountain, astronomical amount of debt, he's got to take it upon himself. He has to eat the cost. And Lois, that's the gospel. That in, in actual fact, in reality, the way that this parable plays out is that our King Jesus, to whom we owe an astronomical amount of debt, a debt that we can't even describe or get our minds around, the, the, the largeness of what we owe. Well, this king doesn't simply say, you're released and forgiven. He steps down off of his throne, and he rolls up his sleeves, and he gets to work, and he obeys the law perfectly in our place. And then he goes to a cross to pay what we owe. Paul in Colossians chapter 2 writes this, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you think you're paying anything back when you're dead? God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Well, what does that mean, Paul? He continues, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Picture this, your sins on a list, a record of debt standing against you miles and miles long. And over Jesus' head when it says, this is the King of the Jews, Along with it is nailed your ledger. The king takes upon himself the debt that you owe so that you can be forgiven and released. And we might expect, we should expect, that a message like that, news so good, would absolutely melt this man's heart, that it would fundamentally change him. Who, who could walk away from an experience like that unchanged? I mean, ridiculous amounts of debt. I don't owe a cent. I didn't have to scrounge for some change. It's, it's forgiven? The king paid it for me? But scene two ends, or begins rather, with the worst word ever. It can be the best word. Here it's the worst word, but... But when that same servant went out, same guy, moments later, he found, he's on a hunt. He's searching. As soon as he steps out of the king's chambers, out of the reckoning room, he finds one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Footnote. Denarii was or a denarius, rather, was a day's wage for labor. Here's a hundred days' wage. That's not insignificant. A hundred days, that's, that's a long time. It's quite a chunk of your yearly salary. So he finds this man who owes him a hundred days' wages, and he seizes him. 
He begins to choke him. He's going violent. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Give me some time. You know, sometimes you, you meet um, a coach or a teacher or some sort of mentor who, who sees in a young person a bit of themselves. They'll say, you know, they remind me of me when I was a young person. So I wanted to take them under my wing and help them. You know, you can imagine this man thinking to himself, well, this, this fellow servant um, reminds me of me when I was young, 15, 20 minutes ago, before I found him, when I was on my knees, saying, give me some time. How absurd. Who does this man think he is? See, here's the whole problem. He's found a fellow servant, fellow servant, but he fancies himself a king, doesn't he? He found a fellow servant, someone who relates in the same way as he does to the king. But he fancies himself a king. And he's owed a debt. And by God, he's going to be paid. You would think he would, he would feel as though he was looking into a mirror, that he would see himself, that his heart would melt, that he would remember out of love the, the graciousness, the mercy of the king who had released him from his debt and at least want to imitate him in some form or fashion and forgive this debt. But instead, he throws him into prison much to the dismay of the other fellow servants who are watching on. And so they go and report to the king everything that had taken place. So in the third scene, we come back into the reckoning room. And it's time for there to be a reckoning. The master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I can just hear the lash. You wicked servant. The absolute shame. I forgave you all that debt. 200,000 years wages because you pleaded with me and you couldn't find it in your heart to forgive your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Well, with the measure that you have used, young man, it will be used with you, and into debtor's prison you go until you pay all of your debt. How long is that going to take? At least 200,000 years. But see, that's just, just a figure of, it's impossible. The debt can't be paid. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you without question, without partiality, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now understand, see what Jesus is after. He's after our hearts. The gospel does something to our hearts. This is not just sort of a, a vain and empty pronouncement of forgiveness upon someone who's, for, who's, who's sinned against us. No, this is a heart 
forgiveness. It's not only limitless, but it's from within. It's internally. Why? Because if we've been grabbed by forgiveness ourselves, our hearts will never be the same. It's easy to sort of read this as sort of like a a tit for tat, that I earn my forgiveness by being forgiven. That's not what Jesus is saying. However, He is saying if you are able in the event of being sinned against by a fellow Christian, if you are able to withhold forgiveness, on what basis do you call yourself a Christian? You haven't understood mercy. You haven't understood the gospel, and therefore you have not received it. If you had received it, you would give it. I like the way that Doug O'Donnell puts this. He says, there is no such creature as an unforgiving Christian. It's an oxymoron. You might like to call it just a moron. There's no such creature as an unforgiving Christian. They don't exist. I sometimes, I sometimes it just picture sins committed against me like, like boulders. And if you picture this boulder, it's sort of in the path. It's keeping me from you and you from me. There's a, there's a blockage. Like how, can I, how can I possibly move this boulder? It's too weighty. It's a hundred denarii's worth. So you know how that boulder gets moved? Is when you stop looking at the boulder and you look up and see the mountain. You see the mountain that represents your debt before the living God and how, in comparison, how, how paltry that once astounding boulder actually is. I think, I think in actual fact, the reason that you and I have such a hard time with forgiveness from the heart is because we fancy ourselves kings and queens. And we've got things completely mixed up. How big is the debt that you are owed? How big is the offense that's been committed against you? If you can for a moment say that it's larger than the offense that you have caused the Lord, you just simply haven't understood. Now, I'm going to say something that might sound controversial, but in light of the gospel is probably the least controversial thing you can say. If you're here this morning and you aren't the biggest sinner you've ever met. Chances are you don't understand the gospel. We tend to think, or at least we're characterized sometimes fairly, 
many times unfairly. Sometimes we're characterized or, or, or we think we're never more like God unless we're pointing out others' faults. But what do the people around us say? To err is human, to forgive is what? Divine. So church family is very often never more like the God they profess than when they forgive one another. From the heart. Let me put that in really, really practical terms. How do I forgive a brother or sister from my heart? I refuse to bring it up to myself. See, when someone sins against you, there are three people that you can talk to about it. Four if you're really pious and you, you pray about it, but let's three people you can talk to about it. You can talk to the offending party about it. You've sinned against me. It's very often the right thing to do, verses 15 to 20. You can talk to others about it. You wouldn't believe what Sally did to me. Seems to me we get over those first two pretty quickly. You go to Sally. You've offended me. She repents. We at least say we forgive. Eventually, people get sick of hearing us complain about Sally, so we quit talking about it to other people. But you know who we almost, we have the the most difficult time um, ceasing to speak about Sally's sins to? Ourselves. You're driving in your car and Sally just sent you a text. Oh, Sally, you remember when she, I can't believe she would, you're lying in your bed. I still haven't gotten over that. You haven't forgiven. Now this doesn't mean that consequences completely go out the door. Consequences are good and right. But in terms of this sort of internal gripping onto the offense, reminding myself of how, how hurt and how offended I was and what right do they have and who do they think they are? And Jesus says, how about a dose of gospel? Don't be mad, be glad that you would have a king who would forgive the mountainous debt that you owe. Who even now is not, not sort of in heaven going, oh, I really should have I remember that thing. No, he forgives without limit from the heart. And so he calls on us, just as the Heavenly Father forgives without limit and from the heart, he calls on us to forgive in that exact way. And so here we come to the Lord's table. I want you to see the opportunity before you. Each and every month as we take the Lord's Supper together, we remind ourselves of all that Jesus has done. This is the new covenant. He says in the Gospel according to Matthew, this is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. We celebrate the forgiveness of sins each and every week, but Communion Sunday, it's like, you know, 
We're, we're put it on, we're, turn it all the way up to 10. We're, we're celebrating the forgiveness of sins. So you have the opportunity this morning not only to celebrate that Jesus might forgive you your sins by placing faith in Him and Him alone and His work on the cross on your behalf, you have the privilege to live in light of Jesus and forgive those who've sinned against you, some of whom are in this room right now. If you're in here and your name is Sally, I'm very sorry. But you have the, the privilege, right, to, Sally, you're free. I love you. I'm satisfied. You owe me nothing. What would the world think if it came in here with its sevenfold vengeance and walked into the lobby and saw a picture of sevenfold forgiveness as people for the first time in years, embraced each other. What would the world think if in light of its propensity to demand what it's owed was confronted powerfully by people who routinely pay others' debts? As the Lord has forgiven you, Paul says, you must forgive. In light of God's free forgiveness in Christ, you and me, we must forgive without limit and from the heart. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are a God characterized by forgiveness. We read in your word in Psalm 130 that with you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. That your forgiveness transforms us and places within our hearts a healthy, reverent fear of you that causes us to want to be like you and to forgive as you forgive. We confess that we do not earn our forgiveness by forgiving, but we certainly do demonstrate our forgiveness by forgiving. So Lord, we pray that you would deal with each of our hearts here this morning. I pray for the one who's never trusted in Jesus, that they might see the mountainous debt that they owe and the willingness of a good and gracious king to take that debt upon himself on a cross, to die and to rise again so that they might go free. For each and every one of us who has trusted in this Jesus, where we pray that we would we'd be characterized by a supernatural, limitless, heartfelt, God-inspired forgiveness. Or move us, move us in that direction, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.